This morning we are celebrating the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, just before we get into the new series for uh, this season, I want to ask you a question. This is not rhetorical, but don't answer just yet. I'll ask another question that I'll need your help with in a second here, but if you could describe who Jesus is, what would you say? And I realize that's a rather simple, but actually it's a difficult question to answer, I would say, because he's so many things to us, and at times it can seem as though we don't have eloquent enough words to do justice to his nature and his character and and fully encompass his whole nature and goodness. This is one of the reasons why we find so many names in the Bible for Jesus. He is our Alpha and Omega, the bread of life, cornerstone, deliverer, king of kings, the good shepherd, our great high priest, the rock, true vine, the word. There's so many more names that we find for him in scripture. And each of these names point to an important aspect of who he is, and and more than that, even his purpose and his nature. And all throughout scripture, names have a significance uh, to to the nature and the purpose of even the people. So, for instance, Pharaoh's daughter, when she found this child floating down the water, Uh, she named him Moses as she drew him up out of the river. And not only does his name refer to the state in which he was found, but also it refers to his purpose that God would later give him in life to draw the Israelites out of Egypt in their enslavement. Another example of this is Peter, right, who was named originally Simon, but uh, after following Jesus was given the name Cephas in Aramaic. uh, In Greek, it's Peter. And the new name meant rock, which would, which would describe the purpose that Jesus would later give him in Matthew 16, where Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Names are important to God. And even in our society, we still have some significance or some meaning to our name. So now's the part where I'll ask for a little bit of your guys' help. Um, how many of you know what your name means? Or just give me some examples of what your guys' name means. Oh, Don, what's your name mean? Leader. I like that. Anyone else know what their name means? Yeah. Dweller of the valley. I like that. Anyone else know their names? Yeah. Precious jewel. Or sap. Yeah, okay, we'll go with precious jewel. I like that. Anyone else? Fortified hill. I like that, yeah. Victorious. Ugh. That's awesome. Yeah. Defender of men, I like that. One more. God, the gracious ruler of all. Beautiful. Right, our names carry with it some significance, some importance behind it, which was why I was a little disappointed when I first learned the only meaning to the name Scott is a person who comes from Scotland. Um, <laughs> I go with Joseph, though, which is my middle name, which means he will add. Uh, Throughout the Advent season, though, we're walking through a new series called Savior, where we're looking at the different names that are given to Jesus, specifically in Isaiah chapter 9, but we're looking at these names in order to give us a better understanding of who Jesus is, what his nature and what his character and what his purpose on this earth was to accomplish. So we're going to be reading a familiar text, as I said, from Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Uh, We're going to be reading Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7. 
And then afterwards, we're going to skip over to chapter 11 and read a couple verses there. So Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We're going to skip over to chapter 11 and just read verses 1 and 2 there. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This morning, we're going we're gonna to focus on what it means for Jesus to be our wonderful counselor. It's not a job title. It's a name. It, it, it characterizes who he is. His nature, his identity is wonderful counselor. And as we unpack this, this name for Jesus today, I want to I look at three things that we can learn out of this text. We can learn more than three things. As a good Baptist preacher, I'll narrow it down to three points, though. Um, so the first point, that Jesus knows us and understands our struggle, right? He knows our needs and our weaknesses, no stranger. That he cares for us is the second point. And the third is that because of these things, we can trust in the counsel that he gives us. Uh, so after we look at those things, I also want to take a look at how we can practically uh, hear his counsel and apply that in our own lives. So first, Jesus being our wonderful counselor knows us and understands our struggles in life. Uh, in, in John chapter 4, we have this, this really interesting story. It's the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and he has this fascinating conversation with a Samaritan woman. Uh, now, context a little bit here. The Israelites were very against the Samaritans. They had kind of a few of their own practices. They worshipped at a different temple. Um, so the Israelites and the Samaritans didn't really get along, but at this point, like I said, it was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He, he didn't uh, uh, show himself to the rest of the world as the Messiah, but only to a few of his disciples, the apostles we'd later call them, just the, the handful of people that followed him. And so Jesus is waiting by this well in the hottest part of the day, and as he is sitting there, this woman, the Samaritan woman, comes to draw water from the well. And as they begin talking with each other, um, Jesus begins to share details with this woman about her own life. So he's talking with her and he starts telling her her own story. And he tells her this, that she has been married five times and that the man she's living with isn't even her husband. And 
looking at the story of all the things Jesus could have brought up to this woman, of all the things he could have shared about her own story for her to understand that he truly is the Messiah, if anything he could have said to her, he went right for the most embarrassing and the most shameful part of her life. Right? You see, you see John, the, the man who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, he, he notes that the woman came to draw water at the hardest part of the, the hottest part of the day at noon. Um, and it was for a reason. It was because she was rejected by her own people, right? She lived in a society where following the law was the greatest good, where obtaining uh, a righteousness through the law was what you were supposed to do. And so, you know, her being a woman who is divorced or lost her husband up to five times and then now also is living with another man that's not her husband, the people would have ostracized her. They would have, you know, if she was coming by on their way, she would have moved over to the other side of the road kind of thing. And yet this is the very part of her life that Jesus chooses to speak directly to her, to tell her that Jesus knows. And this happens many other times in the Bible as well, where Jesus tells people their own story. Uh, the rich young ruler, when he, when he came to ask Jesus, how do I gain eternal life? Uh, Jesus replied and said, go sell all that you have and then come and follow me. Right? He knew what was at the heart of the man and he walked away disappointed because he was wealthy. And Jesus knew what would happen. Jesus saw the man physically, but he also knew his heart. He knew where its importance lied and what the man struggled with. Right? When, when, when the friends were lowering the paralytic through the roof and Jesus healed him uh, in front of this group of Pharisees, Matthew chapter 9 tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew the judgments in their hearts. He knew what was running through their mind and the ways that they were choosing to look down on those around them. Nathaniel, when, when Jesus called the apostle Nathaniel, uh, he said to him, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip, your brother, called you. Right? He, he physically knew where Nathanael was, his past and his present. Right? The story of Jesus uh, healing Lazarus in the book of John, Jesus knew and even said that Lazarus' sickness would lead to death before he died. All throughout Jesus' ministry, we get these glimpses to the fact that he knows everything, everything about us, everything about how this world works. So just to summarize a few of those things that Jesus does know, Jesus knows the most embarrassing, shameful parts of our past. Right? He knows the struggles that we're currently facing. He understands our thoughts, the ways we look down on others. He knows where we are and what the future holds for us. Jesus knows you. He knows us each intimately. Everything about us, and there's not a single detail that we can hide from him either. And now, for some of you, that's terrifying, right? Could you imagine the power someone would have over you if they knew every aspect of who you are? That's terrifying. And maybe that is how some of you do view God, right? Perhaps that is who you think he is. You might recognize he knows everything about you, but because of your past experience or maybe the lens through which you see God, you think that he wants to use that knowledge against you. In fact, it's just the opposite, right? If you, ever, if you ever fall in love with someone or something, 
you know, what, what you want to do, and one of the most wonderful parts of it is getting to know everything about the object of your love, right? You want to know uh, everything about the person, what they like, what they dislike, what their habits are. And that's the difference between us and God, right? We love despite not knowing something fully, but God loves us despite knowing us fully. And because he knows us and completely loves us, he can be our wonderful counselor in life. Now, a counselor is just someone who comes alongside, who has information or wisdom to help a person in the difficult parts of their life, right? They come alongside and give counsel, wisdom, advice. And so Jesus, being our wonderful counselor, not only does he see the most difficult parts of our lives, the struggles that we face, and knows them intimately, but he also has the perfect wisdom to make differences in our lives that matter. He longs to be our counselor, to be our guide in life, to be the one to bring us to freedom, to life, hope, and peace. And what's more is that he even steps into the midst of our pain and feels it along with us. Jesus allows himself to be drained by us. You might ask, well, how does that happen? How does he done that? The cross. John 1 tells us that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right? Jesus entered into this world that we broke for our sake. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus became weak and subjected himself to temptation for our own sake, to help us in our own temptations, in our own struggles. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus went to the cross in order to take on himself the punishment that you and I deserve. So not only does he know every aspect of your past, your present, your future, the things running through your mind and your heart, but because of the depths to which he limited himself in order to save us, we can truly trust and know that he does love us. And in one sense, I would even argue that he knows our suffering better than we do. And it's not just because, again, he took our suffering upon himself, but because of how far he stooped down in order to save us. Philippians hints at this when, when Paul writes, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Right? We, we at points might humble ourselves and we might bite our tongue in moments, or, or we might lower our pride in order to show someone love. But Jesus lowered himself from heights that we cannot fully comprehend in this life. Right? It wasn't just how far he came down for, or how, how low he went for our sake, but about how far he stepped down in order to save us to relate to us, to love us. Right? Jesus was complete in and of himself. He has no need for anything that we could give of him. And yet, despite his perfection, he so loved us enough to enter into this broken world for our sake. Gave all of these things up for us. If you think you can't relate, or if Jesus can't relate to your suffering, You've got it all backwards. If there's anyone who understands your suffering or struggles even more than you do, it's Jesus. It isn't that Jesus is all-knowing but unmerciful. He is merciful because he is all-knowing. 
Jesus knows you. He sees every part of your past, every part of your present, and every part of your future. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There is no distance you can run, no depth you can sink to in your own sin, no place you can hide that Jesus won't see you and be there with you. And because he knows us, he cares for us. Back in Isaiah 9, the chapter that we just read this morning, uh, where God gives this incredible promise to the Israelites that those who have been walking in darkness have seen a great light. Um, It was a brutal time in Israel's history. The moment at which God spoke that promise to the Israelites, many of the Israelites were walking away from God. They were serving other gods. Uh, Molech was one of the gods that they sacrificed to, and they had become so corrupted, their view of humanity had become so evil that they even sacrificed their own children for their own benefit, right? Their view of humanity became so corrupt, their own children were worthless to them in ways. And this is the setting into which God spoke the promise of life and love and the hope of a Savior. In the depths of their depravity, God spoke hope. He spoke freedom and he spoke life. Do you see how great his love is for us? Romans 5 verse 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus comes up to us, sees the most vile acts we have ever committed. He knows how we think of people in our minds and how we judge them. He catches us red-handed in many moments, mistreating those he loves. And in that moment, he says, I see every part of you, and I still love you. Come and follow me. Even when we're working directly against him, he's faithful. And though we make our own lives harder when we work in opposition to Jesus, He still pursues us. He's faithful to never forsake or abandon us. You see, in the Old Testament, God made a a promise, a commitment, or a covenant to his people. And he said that if the Israelites were willing to agree to his rules for them, their law, uh, the Old Testament, you know, the Ten Commandments, all the laws and regulations that we read in the Torah, he said that if you would be willing to follow these, then I will be your God and I will bless you. I will uphold my end of the deal if you uphold your end of the deal to remain faithful to this covenant, right? But we have a much greater commitment in Jesus, right? The old covenant is away and done with through Jesus. We have a much greater promise and commitment from him now to us. In John 10, it says that, Jesus says these words, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish No one can snatch them out of my hand. When we commit ourselves to Jesus, he commits himself to us. Right? Who can snatch us out of Jesus' hands? No one. Nothing. I looked up the, the Greek term here used for the word no one, and guess what? It means no one. There isn't a caveat, there isn't a condition to God's love for us. And his promises. And the best part is is that when we inevitably fall, 
when we fail as we tend to do in this life, all we have to do is simply ask Jesus for forgiveness and get back up and follow him. That's how much he loves us. And every time we come to him, he's willing to accept us again if we seek repentance in him. We don't need to clean ourselves up, get our act together right before we come to Jesus in order for him to accept us. We simply need to seek him and receive his counsel. Do you see how much he cares for you? Not only is he faithfully committed to you, to us, but he gave up his own life for us. And because of this, we can trust that he has our best interest in mind. God values you and I so much that he sacrificed his own child for us. Right? Remember the, the context that we read this passage from. The Israelites were sacrificing their own children for their own benefit. And in the midst of that darkness, God speaks the promise that I will give up my own son for your sake in order to save you from the sin you cannot save yourself from. If God has already done so much just to have a relationship with you and with me, then don't you think that he wants to give us the best counsel in life? Don't you think that the words he speaks to us are truth, are the best way we can live our lives? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus cares for us. He loves us. And because of this, we can trust in the counsel that he gives us. And before we talk about some practical ways that we can apply Jesus' counsel to our own lives, I just want to point out there will be plenty of moments where it's difficult to trust in his counsel or even to seek it. Right? Partly because you and I don't see the full picture of reality. Right? We see such a narrowed perspective that's usually bothered by us not having breakfast or getting a good sleep. And sometimes God disciplines us for our own benefits. And in those moments, we won't know that it's for our benefit. We only catch that on the other side of after we've already grown through it. There are many moments we can't understand why God is allowing or doing what he's doing in our lives. And so we need to trust him. Maybe we will find out. Maybe we won't. But he's nonetheless still trustworthy. Now, if you never put your trust in Jesus, you're never going to build trust. The way to establish trust in him is by testing it. Put your trust in him. The only way to step out in faith, and as we do, as we do step out in faith and build trust, God strengthens us and helps us to understand who he's created us to be and how he's created us to live in this world. But it's also difficult to trust in Jesus because of our own pride, Right? Each one of us here has an idea of what's right and wrong, of what's good and what's evil, and a lot of those things are just personal preferences or opinions at times, not truth. It's hard to trust when we think we have all the answers, right? When we receive Jesus' counsel, can we trust that it's better than what we know or what we think we know? That's why pride is so opposed to God's character all throughout the Bible, Coming to Jesus willing to learn, that is where we can hear and apply his counsel in humility, laying aside our own perspectives. So, how does Jesus give us counsel? What does that practically look like in our lives? How do we follow the ways he's called us to? Um, another three points, don't worry, we'll get through. Uh, but the first is through the word. 
Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So the stories, the the accounts of history, the songs, the letters, the prophecies, all recorded in God's word are truth for us in order to follow, are counsel to us. This is why John in the gospel refers to Jesus as the word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is literally truth incarnate. That's why wonderful counselor isn't just a job description. It's, an, it's a very characteristic of who he is, literally who he is. So if you want to find the, G, the counsel that Jesus has spoken to us already, we can find it in the word. We can read our Bibles and see what Jesus has promised to us, the counsel he gives to us in our day-to-day lives. The second way we can receive Jesus' counsel is through the Spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus says that when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And in John chapter 14, he's literally called the counselor. The spirit is our advocate, our counselor to help us alongside life. So the spirit's role in our life is to remind us of truth, to counsel us, and to help us understand how to live well in this world. It's fantastic, but what does the spirit's voice sound like? Um... I'll tell you right now, it's not Morgan Freeman. I wish sometimes it were. Um, But there are many ways the Spirit speaks to us, right? For instance, have you ever done something wrong and then felt guilty of it and were led to repentance? That's the Spirit working within us, convicting us of sins in regards to righteousness, right? Or have you ever been um, going through something in life and just the right verse seems to pop into your mind for encouragement or that speaks into your situation? That is the Spirit's voice in your life, right? Sometimes it's easy to overlook or miss, but He does speak to us. He speaks truth to us. Or how about this? Have you ever had anyone on your mind or or a situation that someone's been going through that you've had compassion on and wanted to make a difference in? That's the Spirit. He's leading you. He might be calling you to step out and do something. He might be calling you to pray, whatever that might look like. That is the Spirit's leading in your life. The Spirit speaks to us, and there's many ways that He does, but in our busy lives, one of the problems that we have is actually paying attention to that voice or being able to recognize it amidst the busyness. This last uh, week at the junior high retreat, we learned of a little bit more of what it means to abide in Jesus instead of just bearing fruit all the time and constantly working. What does it mean to abide and out of abiding bear fruit? But for us to abide is difficult. I don't have the time to abide in Jesus. But we need to find times where we can be still and know that he is God, even in our own lives, in our own situations. To quiet ourselves and set aside time to listen to him. So, Jesus counsels us through the word, through the spirit, and the last way I want to point out is through the church. In in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he he likens the church to a physical body, a human body, with with a variety of parts that all have different roles and yet work together. And, And being part of this body, each of us have our own unique roles within this place, and we each have our own unique weaknesses. We each have our own blind spots, ways that we just can't see that we're wrong or understand. And this is why we need the other parts of the body to get by. 
We need to help each other see where Jesus is in each other's lives, how he is speaking to us in the ways that we might not be able to see, but other people can call that out in us. Proverbs 15, 22 says, Refuse good advice and watch your plans fail. Take good counsel and watch them succeed. Part of the way that Jesus offers wisdom to us is through the counsel of the body, through the wisdom he's given to us in this beautiful uh, through this beautiful bride is what it is, which is part of the way God helps us to grow, right? It's hard to be proud and ask for help at the same time. I think that's part of the purpose, why we're supposed to rely on each other. So this week, I want to give you a challenge. Make an appointment with the wonderful counselor. Whatever that might look like for you, find a place where you're not going to be interrupted Find a place where you can set aside some time where you can be real with Jesus, that you can tell him what's going on in your life. You can open up the things on your heart. For some of you, this is a daily practice. For others of you, this is brand new, and it is terrifying in ways. But remember and trust that his love for us is great, that he knows every aspect of us, but he loves us still. And if you think it's pointless to tell an all-knowing God what's going on in your own life, Remember that he wants relationship with us. And every aspect of relationship involves communication. Right? It doesn't matter that God already knows. He still wants us to communicate to him. And there's a good reason for that. Right? When Adam and Eve were in the garden after they had sinned, God asked them why they were naked. I think God already knew the answer to that question, right? God asked Moses what was in his hand when he was holding the staff while speaking to him through the burning bush. Jesus, when he was surrounded by a crowd of people, asked, who touched me, even though he knew it was the woman with her illness? That's why Jesus asked the paralytic man, do you want to get well? Obviously, this man wanted to be healed, but still Jesus asked him. Communication in our relationship is what's important. There's something that changes within us when we bring our reality to God. And as we do, God begins to bring reality to us. He begins to help us to see truth, to wipe away the lenses of hurt and pride through which we see the world and through which we see God, and helps us to know him better, to know that he is in control over everything and that he is trustworthy and that he loves us. To help us focus less on our ability to make it through life and focus more on God's ability to work through us. So find time to spend with the counselor this week. He is wonderful. His love for you is greater than you can ever imagine. Um, I'm going to, just in our benediction later, I'll share just a quick verse from um, a familiar hymn, but I just want to encourage you. He is good. He is trustworthy. Put trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, we thank you that you know every part of our lives, that you see us, that there is nothing we can hide from you. And as terrifying as that can seem sometimes, it's also paired with the fact that you love us greater than we can imagine. Father, as we're all in different places in our relationship with you, I pray that for each one of us we would grow closer with you, that you would help us to understand you more, to know you better, I pray that you would help us this week to open up our lives to you in the ways that we need to. I pray that we would rely on, on the counsel of the Spirit, of your Word, of the body, in the ways that we need to. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your great love. 
which knows no bounds. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.